we're going to enjoy an interview right now with Cliff Readers. I always call him a noted attorney. Uh, of course, he uh, became a household word around here during the Penn State child rape cover-up uh, lawsuits and legal entanglements that followed. Past president of the Pennsylvania Trial Lawyer Association, member of the Pennsylvania Patient Safety Authority. And uh, what else, Cliff? Your resume is about four pages long, I'm sure. And he's a nice guy, too. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, you know, whatever they put on there. Whatever my handlers tell me to put down here, they put down there. <laughs> Your handlers. Well, you thank her. You thank Melissa for uh, clearing the space for us this morning. Oh, sure. We are talking about the State of a Union address. Can I get a quick reaction from you? Any thoughts about what you saw or heard last night? Yeah. Well, as, as a committed kind of middle-of-the-roader sort of guy, you know, and I, I like to critique both sides, I thought it was a, a grand slam. I really did. I've been watching. I, I hate to reveal my age, but I've been watching. Uh, you know, I think there are two things that I do as a citizen. I think are absolutely key. Number one is vote, and number two is listening to State of the Unions. And you know, they're always a wish list, and they're always, you know, they're always sort of baloney. Um, and they all do it. I remember watching my first one was you know Eisenhower. So I'll give away my age, you know. But um, so I've tried to watch every one. I'm not sure I've ever missed one. I thought it was great. And I and I'm not a big TV watcher, you know. But it reminded me of Oprah. What he did was Oprah or Ellen DeGeneres or any of these kind of people. You know, he made it into TV. He used the medium. He used the medium of TV, of live TV, um, as though he were running a show. And he has experience at that. I mean, that's something he knows, right? He, he was a TV guy, a TV celebrity. And um, the way he handled the introduction of all of these marvelous people, most of whom were, were minority people, you'll notice. Um, the way he handled that was, you know, very, very slick, very experienced. Um, he looked like he knew what he was doing. And they were all compelling stories. You know, I'm not the kind of guy to tear up, but, you know, at least two of them made me tear up. So... So that component of it, um, which is what most people are going to remember and most people see and most people think about and what the you know, news people talk about, was really magnificently done. Uh, I think that for him to have resisted talking about the impeachment was remarkable for him. I would have bet anybody on your show $10 million that he would have made at least one snide remark about the impeachment. Uh, and he did not. And I, I would have lost that bet. Uh, and so it does show the guy has matured in office. He's developed some self-control. He's developed some realization just because he thinks that he doesn't necessarily have to say it, at least not on the spot. And so not saying anything about the impeachment probably got him a couple of extra votes, you know. And, uh, of course, you know, he talked about um, empowerment of minorities and the poor. And, of course, it made the Democrats crazy because they think those are their issues, you know. And to hear a Republican president uh, talk about God country, the poor, um, the minor minority groups, that sort of thing, that combination of issues is something that Democrats don't really know how to deal with very well. Uh, it confuses them. It makes them angry. They think that's exclusively their domain. So my, you know, I would I would give him a you know a ninety plus in terms of the performance and the content. What do you What did you think of Nancy Pelosi tearing up his speech at the end? Well, I, I think it looked petulant and childish, and she lost votes. You know, and people, sure, you know, the committed partisans they love whatever their people do. So you know, a committed partisans going to say, oh, she's got she's got guts, good for her. You know. But but the average person in the middle, people like me, you know, people who really do try to see both sides and understand their issues and different opinions and what, who see that sort of thing, you know, just shake their head. I, I talked to a woman who I would consider, you know, a very sort of moderate thinker. Um, I don't think she especially is crazy about Trump.
Trump, and she was she was livid about it. She was livid about it. Called her that b used a b word. Now this is a woman who told me this, so I would consider her to be. Um, uh, uh, you know, what you might call the feminist type in terms of her opinions. She was she was livid that Nancy Pelosi would do that. It seemed to her to be the lowest of the low. So if she, if you're going to criticize Trump and the Democrats are going to criticize Trump for being you know crude and crass and ignorant and inappropriate and then do the same thing, for goodness sakes, you know how do you get away with that? <laughs> so uh, I think that was really dumb on her part. It was poor TV. It was dumb. Whereas Trump showed good TV skills. She showed poor TV skills. Now, I, I don't know if, if Trump deliberately did not shake her hand or if that was a miscue or, or you know, he, he was just moving fast. But if he deliberately did not shake her hand, I think that was a mistake, too. And it's hard. Listen, I'm a trial lawyer. And I can tell you, I've been through some pretty big battles with some pretty nasty people. And I always shake their hand at the end of the case. And, I, you know, so I have to grip my teeth sometimes. You know, I've, I've dealt with people who are liars, who are crude, who are inappropriate, um, who are dishonest with the court. I have to go over and shake their hand. I mean, give me a break. But I do it. So, what, you know, so I, I think that he should have done it. If he did, but, but it wasn't as, as obvious. It was not um, as, as obviously a petulant, um, immature, childish thing as her ripping up the speech in peak, you know, in a, in a fit of peak. It showed a lack of professionalism on her part and really sort of... Uh, but, but then again, the, those, that, you know, those that hated Obama... Those that hate Trump, those that really hate their president, will, will go to any level to degrade that person. And so that's what you saw. Well, Cliff, this is a question that's six miles wide and maybe an inch deep. But your impression of the impeachment, the whole process from where it started to where we are now? So it's a political process is what I see. You know, lawyers look at this thing. Lawyers look at it. And they try, and, and I think the pop, pop, public does too, and they, they're trying to see it in the context of a trial. So everybody, whether you see it on TV or whether you hear about it from friends or whether you've done jury duty, you know, everybody has kind of a sense of what a trial is. And, and so when you get into an impeachment, whether it's Clinton or whether it's this one or Nixon, I was involved in the Nixon one because I, I worked for the lawyer, you know this, who defended the men who broke into the Watergate. So, I mean, I sort of saw that one really close up. Um, you know, the, the people who are involved in the, in, in the process um, try to turn it into a conventional trial, and it's not. It, it's a political spectacle. And this is a political spectacle. And so to say, uh, well, we're, we're charging the president with these crimes, show me in the criminal code where it is. And, you know, Democrats keep saying, um, well, the criminal code uh, says this is illegal as a if it, if it did, they would have cited it. They would have said 18 United States Code, section blah, 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 makes it illegal, it's treason, or whatever, and they, they don't have that. And, they, and so it becomes a political spectacle where the question is, is what he did so inappropriate that he's forfeited the right to serve the country in a way that is grounded upon the thinking of the founders? And what he did, I think, was a wrong thing. Uh, I think any American public official who reaches out to a foreign country and attempts to coerce that foreign country through the threat of aid or aid cutoff, uh, anybody who does that, um, you know, in order to you know, better their own political view, has done the wrong thing. Uh, just no question about it. I think most Republicans feel the same way. Uh, but the question is, is that a high crime and misdemeanor? And you can argue about what, what Hamilton um, thought when he wrote the Federalist Papers, and you're not going to come up with an answer, because it wasn't really absolutely clear to the founders. They had an uh, amorphous idea in their head. It was not a vote of no confidence. Um, and in fact, the, the initial form of government 
Hamilton wanted that form of government. He wanted a parliamentary kind of system where if you don't like the prime minister, who's the head of the party, the head of the ruling party is the prime minister, right? You don't like them, you have a vote of no confidence. After the vote of no confidence, they've got to put up another person or you have to have a general election. That's what happened in Israel. That's why they've had three elections in one year, because essentially they could not cobble together a majority um, for the ruling party. So you have to have an election. And so, um, but this is not a parliamentary system. The founders rejected that. They didn't want a parliamentary system. They wanted a, 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 they wanted co-equal branches of government. And really, the remedy, if you don't like Trump or what he's done, is to you know vote for a new president. Um, having said that, I still think what he did was wrong. I don't think it should happen. Hopefully, he's learned a lesson and he knows better. Uh, but it's it you know it is disturbing when you have uh, American public officials. Um, who are um, working with foreign powers to try to uh, assist their own political agenda. It shouldn't happen, okay? Uh, I don't think it's a high crime or misdemeanor, but I, I think it's bad. It was dumb, and I think he deserved to be criticized for it. And whether you vote for him or not the next time around depends upon who his opponent is. Since this is just a political endeavor, should we have had witnesses, or was the decision to expedite and not have witnesses a good one? Uh, again, if you th- if you realize that it's not a trial, if it's a trial, there should be there should be witnesses. But um, if it, if it's not a trial and it's re- basically a political decision, then you should not. The other question is when the House impeaches. Really, what is that? It, so, if you, again, if you want to look at it from the criminal context, it, it's basically like a probable cause hearing, right? So they found a magistrate finds probable cause. If they find probable cause, they bind it over, and there's a trial. And in a trial, there are witnesses. So, if you want to equate it to a criminal trial, which it's not, and I don't think the founders intended it to be, but if it was, then yes, you would need to have witnesses. If it's not. A, uh, a, a criminal trial, if it is rather a, a recall, um, the House recalling um, somebody who they believe has you know, violated the basic rules of our government structure, um, then whether you have witnesses or not really depends upon the case. Witnesses, we're not really going to add anything to what we know in particular, just cause more disruption. Right. So in the context of it not being a criminal trial, then I think it's okay not to have witnesses. So it really depends upon where you come out on that equation. And the founders don't really give us enough guidance to know for sure. So, you know, even though everybody, this is one of my bugaboos, you know, everybody talks about original intent. And even the president did last night. You know, I'm going to point judges who, who don't interpret, they read it as it is. Sorry, I have to say that both the left and right wing, Republicans and Democrats, everybody interprets. You interpret conservatively or liberally or however you want to interpret, but, but this is a document that's, uh, you know, from, from 1789. It's an antique. Um, the times have changed. There weren't any political parties when they, for, good, for goodness sakes, when they wrote the Constitution of the United States. There were no political parties. Um, we, the, the press did not exist as we know it today. Uh, the press was owned by different, by different political interests in those days, whether it was James Callender or Benjamin Franklin Bache. They were owned by the Federalists or the Whigs or the Anti-Federalists. So you have an entirely different nation today, and you're trying to fit you know, a round peg into a square hole. So um, to be able to read the Constitution and say, well, this is what are required, required witnesses or not witnesses, is bogus. It really depends upon whether you view the process as a criminal proceeding, like, like we have in the court of law, which I do not think it is, and I don't think most people think it is, um, or whether you see it as a political process. If it's, if it's a political process, it doesn't really matter if you have witnesses or not. 
if you have if you otherwise have the information. Does that uh, answer your question? Yes. Oh, fabulous. Great job. Thank you. I appreciate the insights. Iowa debacle. Have you monitored that? We have about two thirds of the results are out now. But you monitor this and have a keen interest in politics and voting. Well, you know, again, again, I have a healthy disrespect for the process, but I'm quite aware of it. I've worked in the process. I've worked for politicians. I've done some election law. You know, I've done some some uh, legal work in the election field. So, um, again, it gets much too much importance. It, it, these are basically meetings of a political party where people get together in a room and express their their interest in in a particular candidate. It's a small state in the Midwest. It's probably never affected the national election. Um, all it really is is kind of a beauty contest where you know you get some idea of of who people like based upon personal face-to-face meetings and uh it gets way too much attention you know it's like a sporting event it it really doesn't mean much it's uh, one game in a a 160 game uh uh, season right and so uh, uh my my take on the whole thing is it's relatively meaningless so we know that a lot of people think that uh, you know one or two of the candidates have a pleasant, chatty manner, and they like them, and they like getting together with them in a room. It really says very little about what's going to happen down the road. All right. Uh, very little to nothing. It may help fundraising. You know, it may help the two leaders now with some fundraising. But the, but the Democratic Party has a much more fundamental problem, and it's one that has really been going on since... Um, you know, since the days of, well, you can say since the days of Kennedy, really, but, and that is a tendency um, to nominate candidates who are perceived by most Americans as extreme. And uh, Bill Clinton was an exception. Bill Clinton was successful because Democratic, Democrats are capable of selling him as being a conservative Democrat. Uh, I, I had Democrats say to me they consider him a corporate Democrat. And uh, I met Bill Clinton a few times, and he, he was a very impressive personality on a one-to-one basis. Um, but he, he was able to, he was a good comedian, he was able to sell himself any way he wanted to sell himself. He did end welfare as we know it. He did have some, quote, conservative, close quote, credentials, uh, or at least enough of them to be able to, you know, make that appeal. Um, but but aside from a couple of exceptions, and that's probably the one major exception, Democrats seem to have a tendency to nominate somebody who who represents the most extreme element of the party. Maybe because those are the people who work the hardest, you know, or they get the most attention, or you know, they 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 go to the polls, and. Uh, so that's a that's that's you, a tendency that they're going to have to worry about as they go through the rest of these, and that's what Joe Biden is trying to posit himself as: I'm the non-extremist, you know, uh, vote for me because I'm I'm not I'm not on an, uh, I'm not one of those kind of people who are going to make you lose the election. We have a few. We'll mo- see. I don't think he's going to get the nomination, by the way. Don't you? But we'll see. Who do you think? Who do you think will, Cliff? Yeah. What do you see in the months ahead? Well, I think I think that Elizabeth Warren probably has a strong. Ultimately, will have the strongest shot. She has a fundraising machine. She knows how to raise money. She's got a consistent message. She will appeal to the left wing base very strongly. She's a woman. Uh, we know from polling in Pennsylvania and other major states that women generally have a one to two to three percent advantage. Um, that's right. Now, people don't realize that, but look at the look at the polling and look at the election results nationwide in the last ten years. Um, so it, it's um, I, you know I think I think she's probably if I were a betting man I had ten dollars to bet <laughs> and I wouldn't do it I don't bet but you know I, w- I would bet she'd be she'll get the nomination. She's viewed as not being honest, told some good lies along the way. What's your reaction when uh, you think about how that folds into her candidacy? 
Yeah, yeah, but of course, but they, but everybody does. Listen, any candidate that you, if you want to expose any candidate to a to an honest fact checking, uh, they all say things that they you know, just are not correct, not accurate. Whether they're lies or whether they're deliberate or not deliberate or just boo boos, you know, who knows? But um, it's very difficult to get up there and talk to an audience without notes for half an hour or an hour and not make quote mistakes unquote, or not to take liberties with the truth. Um, or not to, you know, not to take poetic license with the, you know, with the way you express a particular point of view. So, you know, I don't. You can compare her misrepresentations to anybody else who's run for office, and I don't know if she'd come out more, better or worse than anyone else. The, the issue with Elizabeth Warren is how extreme is she on social, political, um, military um, issues? Um, how much? Um, how much of a tax burden is she going to impose on Americans? And are they willing to do that to get what they want to get? Um, and that's what uh, that's really what it's ultimately going to come down to. And I do believe it's ultimately going to it's ultimately this election is going to come down to the state of the economy, because Americans have a particular view as to how they're living, and some some people who we may not morals we may not like and across the world and many other countries wind up staying in office because things are good and people generally will vote for the status quo the status quo is okay and um, you know Trump sounded the right message for him for his reelection of the Republican Party and it's all about the economy stupid and that's what he said last night and that's what he's going to beat the drum on and um, you know and, that, and Americans okay. will respond to that. When it comes right down to it, most people that I know, people that work for me, are not sitting around counting how many lies Trump or Elizabeth Warren told. They're looking at their paycheck. They're looking at their bonuses. They're looking at their profit sharing. They're looking at what they're paying for health care. And if things are good, they're you know they're either not going to vote or they're going to vote for the person in office. Or just in stable condition would be a satisfactory outcome for some of those topics. Okay, we'll give you the last word. Anything else to add to any of our topics or anything new to bring up any other topics of your interest? No, well, I, I think that the one thing that was kind of, uh, that is somewhat ignored about um, Trump, which is sort of which I think is very interesting, is you know Democrats for years. Have been carrying on that we should, you know, we should uh, not be involved in in the foreign wars. Uh, he's probably done more to try to dial down those uh, engagements and the cost of those engagements than any president in a very long time. I mean, he'd fit in with some pretty liberal Democrats if you again look at a twenty or thirty year cycle in terms. And he said it last night. You know, war is bad for the economy, and that really that really uh, hits home to me because I did one of my thesis. I did two theses. One of my thesis was whether war is good for the stock market. And I got to talk to Gus Levy, who was chairman of the board of the New York Stock Exchange, a really big guy, probably one of the most famous you know, people of all time. And I asked him flat out, um, is, a, is war good for the economy or not? And he was livid. And he said, absolutely not. He went on for you know, an hour giving me a, a lecture in economics why it was not. So Trump gets that. It's bad for the economy. And so that's why they've done these targeted assassinations and targeted killings. Get rid of the bad guys, you know. You don't need to send in 10,000 or 100,000 or 200,000 troops. So that's a, that's a message that I think he is, is in the background um, that will, will come out. I think also his war on terrorism has been, it's not successful. It'll never be 100% successful, but it's certainly been more successful than attempts in the past. Isolating Iran, which is the world's largest uh, um, you know, leader 
of uh, uh, or financier of terrorism um, is extremely important, and he's done that well. And he's embarrassed the Democrats and the prior president by taking the bull by the horns on that. And of course, the trade deals. You know, I remember pretty vividly uh, actually talking to Bill Clinton when he was going around the country with George Bush selling the, the country, and they both went together to sell the country on, you know, the trade deal, on NAFTA, on NAFTA in particular. And um, really, he's the first, all the presidents say they hated it. They, every one of them has said it was no good. Obama said it was no good. But he was the first one who had the intestinal fortitude to, you know, to precipitate a crisis with China in order to get a better deal. Somebody needed to do that. He was willing to do it, and he did it, and it's going to make a difference. And uh, so there are some other subtle, more subtle issues that um, you know he's going to have in his back pocket as he as he has a run up to the election. Well, we'll have you back on the line in a few months as some of the uh, primary election falls together, and President Trump will do more campaigning, and we'll talk yeah. about those other issues at that time. Cliff, thank you so much for checking uh, in. Yeah, anytime you have thank a, you very much. Anytime you have a spare clear. minute, you're always welcome here. <laughs> yeah, and come back and visit us again. <laughs> Thanks, we'll, Cliff. We'll Absolutely. put you up at co-host. So thank you, sir. <laughs> Take care, Cliff. Okay. Take care, Bye. attorney. Cliff readers, uh, uh, readers, Travis, and the rest of his partners up there in Williamsport, past president of Pennsylvania Trial Lawyers Association.